and welcome to The Armin Show, where we talk about everything science, human behavior, creativity, and more. Thanks for joining, and make sure to subscribe. I have my guest. Hello. Rebecca. Hi. And I have our guest here today. We will be discussing the topic of internal family systems along with shame, guilt, and also many, many years of psychotherapy experience. Dr. Martha Sweezy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm glad to have you on. You're the author of Internal Family Systems Therapy for Shame and Guilt, along with seven other books, and have many years of experience in the psychotherapy category. We are interested in that, human behavior, understanding, uh, psychology, how it works. Why Internal Family Systems? How did you get into this category to where you are today, where you have a lot of experience in? Well, um, I started off in the late 1980s with a particular interest in community mental health. And I worked at the Cambridge Health Alliance, which is a, a community mental health hospital in Cambridge, Mass, for um, about 18 years. Um, and um, I, it, it, it's a very lively place. Um, the psychiatry department of Cambridge Hospital, a lot of great um, uh, sort of mentors and uh, wonderful, uh, a wonderful, really smart staff. So um, there was a lot to learn there uh, over the years. And um, I studied a lot of different things, um, but we worked with a severely traumatized population um, and with a lot of different diagnoses. Uh, and I kept learning new things because nothing ever fit the bill for everybody. And so I studied a lot of different things and I was the associate director of the DBT program also at, uh, in the psychiatry department, uh, who, a program that was developed by Marshall Linehan for folks with the, who met criteria for the diagnosis borderline personality disorder, all of whom in our case had a lot of trauma. And um, so I was always looking because nothing, not, nothing ever suited everybody. And some things were helpful for some people, but not enough for my taste. So I, in 2005, a colleague and friend took me, said, just grabbed me by the shoulder and said, come on, we're going to go hear this guy, Richard Schwartz, talk at the church over by the common. And so we went over and Dick spoke for uh, a while and then showed a, a video that blew my mind. I, and what, I said, whatever he just did, that's what, I, that's what I've been looking for and that's what I want to do. I don't know how he did it. I don't know what he did. I don't know what he was doing, um, but I gotta. I have to find out. So I immediately began to pursue uh, trainings in IFS, uh, which were going on in the Boston area at the time. And I quickly went through all the levels of training that were available. And because I am also a writer, I started, uh, and that's kind of how I process things. I started writing about. Uh, my experience, you know, writing case uh, cases up, and also I wrote an article comparing 
dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, with IFS, um, a sort of um, compare contrast article that was published um, in the Journal of Psychotherapy Integration in, I think, 2009. And um, so, uh, and I said to Dick, we have to start, you know, doing something about research. And he said, I know, I know. And so we formed a research committee and I helped get sort of that off the ground. And there's a, uh, a foundation now that, um, that you know, oversees research into IFS. And we are doing some research right now at Cambridge Health Alliance on, I've, although I'm not on staff there anymore, I'm still a consultant and a research consultant there. So, um, so uh, you know, it just kind of, everything fell into place for me in terms of, of uh, understanding um, behavior, the behavior of folks who've been traumatized, the behavior of folks who um, have various kinds of different diagnoses and struggle a lot to uh, recover. And so the idea of psychic multiplicity and the ways in which that fit with what I had been seeing for years was enormously helpful for me. What does IFS exactly stand for? Internal Family Systems Therapy. And the reason um, Dick, uh, Schwartz, who, who Richard Schwartz, who founded and developed um, IFS, chose that name because he was a family therapist, and he started taking the concept of systems uh, to the internal experience of his clients, individual clients, and uh, and listening to the way they were talking about how their minds, you know, the one part of me this and one part of me that, and my parts are arguing. And he started taking these concepts he had learned as a family therapist and applying them to the individual mind. So he, he ended up calling it internal family systems. Can you remember what exactly about IFS you found that you wanted to take part in it? Yeah. Um, it, well, for one thing, um, I liked it myself. I mean, it was very, you know, it, it's very engaging. And if you apply it to yourself, which you, uh, the trainings are very experiential for uh, the participants, um, it's um, fascinating, for one thing. And uh, there's a lot of humor, I guess, I'll put it that way, in in the experience and a lot of sort of fantastical uh, elements to this, to subjective experience if you, once you start paying attention to it and taking it seriously rather than dismissing it as some kind of aberration and, um, or something that isn't important. So once you start talking to your parts and they start talking back to you uh, rather than just observing uh, them or your own behavior um, and your thoughts and your feelings. You're, you're actually engaging with your so-called thoughts and feelings as if it's another person. And they talk and parts talk back and, and it's really fun. Um, and you can get somebody, in my experience, most people, not everybody likes to do this, you know, work this way, but most people 
if you ask them to pay attention internally and then begin to engage directly with the, their parts, however they experience them, they begin to get a lot of um, interaction with their parts and, and it's equally fascinating um, and enlightening for them. Is it possible to give some sort of example of what that would look like? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so let's say somebody comes in and says, um, it's something like I'm drinking too much and I really want to stop. I, every night I come home from work and I'm, and you know, I'm just drinking a whole bottle of wine and, and then I feel kind of hungover the next day, but and I think I'm going to stop, but I don't stop. And I, and I really am puzzled. I don't understand why I'm drinking so much right now. Um, so then I would say to them, okay, so let's go back to when you come home from work and you're, you, what, what, you know, what's your first thought when you walk in the door? My first thought is I'm not going to drink tonight. Um, and then what happens? Well, then I have this other thought that is like, oh, come on, just, just one glass. I can just have one glass, you know, so that then you have <clears throat> two different parts already having a conversation in this person's head. Um, that's what we would call them in IFS. And then the person is observing those two parts. I've gotten them into a conversation where they're reporting on this interaction that's happening internally every night. Um, and it can turn into a big argument, let's say, for this person. So the person has one part who's kind of pissed about it and saying, you shouldn't drink, it's really bad. And another part who says, well, I'm going to anyway, and opens the bottle of wine and pours a glass, right? And so then they start drinking and then that pretty much quiets the other part, the one who's complaining and, and, and upset and shaming them for doing it until the next morning. So they, so the part who wanted to drink takes over and drinks the whole bottle, right? And in our interaction in therapy, we are observing these behaviors, not judgmentally, not trying to control these parts, but just trying to get the story, you know, what's happening here. And then I'll say to the person, well, which of those parts needs your, do you notice those two parts? They'll say, well, yeah, kind of, I do notice that. And well, which of those two parts needs your attention first? Uh, I don't know. Well, ask them. Um, and then this, the person will say, well, that's kind of a strange idea. I'll say, yeah, but go ahead, try. And then um, they ask and the, and the, let's say the complaining part, the, the critic, uh, says, I, I want to speak first. I want to say something. It's really, you are really bad. You are a bad person for doing this. And you have no self-control. You have no willpower. And the critic starts doing its thing and being really critical. And, and at which point I will interrupt and I'll say, you know, I know you're really great at doing that. That's your job. You're very good critic. But if you do that now, instead of telling us, talking to us, you know, we're right here. This, you know, Sally, the Sally who's not a part, is sitting here and I'm here, and we want to know what's going on between you two. There's this one part who wants to drink, and you don't want that part to drink. And we, I totally get why you don't want that part to drink. So I, I'm talking to the part directly. And I'm saying, would you just, you know, instead of talking, being, doing your job and being critical, would you take a minute and tell us 
what you're most worried about. What, why is drinking such a bad thing? What's going on? And so you kind of coax that part into saying, well, you know, Sally gets up with a hangover every morning and then she goes to work and it's really hard to be at work and it's really not good for her. And, and so, you know, I'm concerned. Okay. So you're concerned. You're not, you're not just critical. You're actually worried about Sally. Okay, good. Now can we talk to the drinking part? And then the drinking part says, well, you know what, Sally, if Sally, if I didn't have a drink at the end of the day, Sally would be so miserable because she hates her job and she hates her boss and she really can't stand it. And I'm the one who makes life bearable for her. Uh, And that's why, you know, and other than that, if I don't do that, she comes home and that critical part just tells her it's her fault that she's not enjoying her job and beats up on her all night. And then she feels worse the next day. So I'm the one I'm saving Sally with the drinking. I'm the hero here, right? I'm making life possible. So then we have the two different stories from these two parts and they both have legitimate concerns, right? So I don't want to pick a side between them and I don't want Sally to pick a side, but I want her to get, um, so to hear them, understand what they're trying to do for her and get into a relationship with them so that they have other options, right? Because she needs to know that she, she needs to really pay attention to the fact that she hates her job and she doesn't, she's not getting along with her boss. There's a problem here that needs to be solved. And these parts of hers are trying to solve it uh, in a way that's making matters worse, right? So the more she can hear from them because they have some wisdom and then offer, you know, together uh, with them, uh, understand why that way of doing business isn't working and get them to sign on for something else. And the something else is you would say to, you would, you would go down to the next level, which would be, well, what keeps Sally in this job, even though she doesn't like it, right? So then there's some more parts involved with that probably. And that may have to do with the fact that she has, a, say, a very compliant part who learned to put up with abusive people um, when she was a child and doesn't dare to speak up or be assertive and is afraid to, is kind of feels paralyzed and afraid uh, to leave the job. And then there's a very angry part who, who would be explosive, say, with her boss. And other parts want to sit on the angry part because they're afraid she'll get fired and won't have a good, you know, um, referral for the next job or whatever. So there's all these different concerns going on in her system. But it, essentially, there's a child, a young kid in the middle of that who is frozen but in this situation and and scared and feeling overwhelmed and these protective parts of the drinking part is trying to distract from that the critic is actually trying to distract from it in in its own way so you have these layers of things going on to handle the essential problem of a very young part who got hurt and and parts who are probably not that much older trying to solve that problem and function in the adult world in a way that they're not really equipped to do. So you want to get the client in relationship with them so that they're not, so that young, young kids aren't in the driver's seat in their life. And that, and she, Sally, the Sally who's not a part can feel some compassion for these parts and, 
and and understand that you know her the feelings that they have are not anything that she can't handle now as an adult she can get in a relationship with those parts take care of them help to heal the one who got hurt and get things on a better footing for functioning as an adult i mean that's you know kind of a then that's a long process that's not just you know a 10-minute wrap-up or something but it's um it depends on on how how scared the person's protective parts are um how slow the therapy has to go um, because sometimes people have parts who really don't trust anybody and it takes a long time before they're willing to try something new basically do you, do you feel like through your experience, you've learned how to navigate all these areas in a person to kind of dig, or, dig deeper and reach all these different layers that a person can maybe mask themselves in? Yes, I'm, I'm pretty good at it now, actually. <laughs> I, you know, but that's with many years of experience and, and a, lot of, <clears throat> a lot of thought to the subject as well as, as all the training that, that um, the IFS Institute has to offer. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think anybody who pays attention to this and puts the time in can learn how to do it. It's not, um, it, it's, you know, it, you can do it, you'll, you'll end up doing it your, with yourself in the training, and that will give you a lot of guidance for how to help other people. And the more you work with different diagnoses, the more you'll learn what folks who have sort of behaviors in different categories need from you as a therapist. How do you know? Let's say you're interacting with somebody that you are reaching their frozen child. Are there things they do that showcase that you're getting to their actual, that exiled portion? Yes. Of them? Yeah. I mean, people are, they're, the, the categorizations uh, broadly for, for parts when people are in trouble um, behaviorally or emotionally, when they come in, there are these protective parts and they're protecting these more fragile, vulnerable parts um, who get exiled from consciousness because um, you don't want a distressed five-year-old, you know, running your adult life, right? So um, as life goes on, those parts get put out of sight and out of mind so the person can function, but they're still there. So it's like you've got, a, you know, a crying five-year-old in the basement or in the closet or something, and 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 that noise is going on in the background of the person's psyche and the protective parts are trying to manage that part and not let it do a jailbreak and and take over right so um so say so if someone comes to therapy most people come to therapy uh want to you know uh, voluntarily they seek therapy they're coming on their own they want to they want to try therapy because they're distressed in some way in their life they're coming in with these proactive kind of managerial protective part, uh, usually in the lead, who's made the choice to try therapy. And that part has a, an agenda and says, I want, you know, Sally to drink less. That's, that's my goal for therapy, right? So that's one part that we're hearing from. That's the proactive protector. The reactive protector is the one who's drinking, right? The one who says whatever Sally feels at the end of the day is totally unacceptable and dangerous. And I'm not going to have her feeling that way. 
and I'm going to drink no matter what anybody says to me, no matter how critical they are, no matter how bad the consequences are, I'm going to take care of this feeling when I have to. It's an emergency. So that's a, a reactive protector. And then underneath that are these exiled parts. And there, so somebody came into therapy kind of weeping and saying, I, I just can't go to work anymore. I can't get out of bed. I'm barely functioning. I feel so overwhelmed. I'm having flashbacks to these terrible things that happened to me. You know, I feel terrible about myself. That's more likely to be a jailbreak by one of these vulnerable parts is taken over um, and is, is sort of in charge, is driving the car. Um, if the person comes in and says, because their spouse told them they had to come in because they were drinking too much, and they say, I don't mind drinking. I'm happy drinking. Drinking is great. I don't, I don't know what everyone's so upset about. I'm just here because my wife told me or my husband told me they were going to leave me if I didn't do something about it. So that's why I'm here, but I don't, I don't believe in all this stuff. That's the reactive protector. So you can kind of tell behaviorally uh, what role the, the dominant protector is in when someone walks in the door. Is there a lot of individuals that are later in existence that are walking around with that very young self of them running the show basically decades and decades along? Can that happen? Sure. I mean, most of us have, have these uh, protective parts and also vulnerable. Well, we all have these protective parts and vulnerable parts. And um, depending on where we are in life and how things are going, uh, we're going to look more or more functional or less functional, right? And sometimes people, you know, who are, can be very functional, suddenly something really shocking happens. Turns out you're your partner is going to leave you abruptly and you didn't know to see this was coming, that can kind of push somebody off a cliff. They were doing fine and suddenly they're not doing fine. And what happens is that parts who were sort of primed by past experience to feel unlovable and worthless come up and take over and the person feels particularly kind of devastated and unable to function uh, because they've been had this shocking event, right? So their their manager parts kind of get kicked out of the driver's seat and life was going well, but suddenly life looks like a disaster. That's a different part who has taken over. One who had been kept out of consciousness and has now come back into consciousness because of an event that happened in life. Now, when it comes to shame and or guilt uh, question for both here. One is, which one is more prevalent in the United States if there is one that's more common that you see? And um, before that, when you think of shame or guilt, and I want to put my input too, mm -hmm. what comes to mind as far as what those mean or what do you think of when you think of those terms? The first thing that comes to mind is when somebody has shame, they're identifying themselves as something not good and taking on that identity. And then guilt is something to me where you do something and you're just feeling bad about it. 
right? Like you, you, the, you did wrong versus you are wrong as mm-hmm. a person. That discrepancy. I think that's probably for that's how I right. interpret it. It's like the cultural difference. Like I think, let's say Iran, where I'm born, it's more shame based, and I think individualistic cultures are more guilt based. Yeah. What has been your experience with? that which one is more prevalent and are those good descriptions of shame and guilt there you want my thoughts on that mm-hmm. okay so this is a sort of uh huge question which is probably beyond my ability to address it because i'm not a sociologist and i haven't really studied other cultures that much i do know i have taught i people have sent me some articles about this uh, as I've been talking about the topic about shame and and guilt in other cultures, but uh, I'm no expert on this. And I've also worked with a few, you know, not a big number, but a few individuals from cultures around the world using IFS and and sort of addressing issues of shame or guilt. And I find that it's everywhere, you know. I mean, these are hardwired emotions that people can feel, and I can't generalize because I'm just, you know, dealing with a, a, my experience is just with a handful of people. Um, uh, it was certainly relevant for them. That's all I can say. Right. Do you approach those differently if someone is? coming to you with a feeling of shame versus they're coming to you with a feeling of guilt. Is there anything different to respond to them? Yes, it's very different. Um, their shame is, as you were saying, I am. It's an identity uh, issue. Shame is uh, there's something wrong with me. That I'm worthless. I am unlovable. I am bad. I am defective, I am blah, 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 some kind of negative uh, conclusion to that about your, uh, as a global assessment of your value, Um, as as opposed to guilt, which, as Rebecca was saying, is um, an assessment of my behavior, right? So if I'm assessing my behavior, um, I have an action urge to repair it. In other words, I'm when I feel guilty, I'm concerned about you. Oh, geez, I I realize I stepped on your toe. Boy, I, what I said was not what I did. Whatever, it wasn't right. It wasn't nice. It was mean. I shouldn't have done that. Um, I'm better than that. I don't want to behave that way. I'm And I don't want to lose your my friendship or relationship with you, so I'm going to make a repair. I'm concerned about you and about our relationship. Right, so the action urge of guilt is repair. Uh, now, guilt can be uh, adaptive or maladaptive. In other words, if I really transgress, it's really a good idea for me to register that and feel guilt. Um, I want that. You want that. You know, so- socially as a society, we want to be able to feel guilty when we do something wrong because it's it reweaves the broken threads that happen when we misbehave with each other, which we are bound to do, right? Um, so uh, guilt is a good thing, but, if, but it can also be maladaptive in that I may feel guilty without transgressing, 
So for example, say if I'm a kid who's growing up in a household with depressed parents um, and I want to, you know, I hit teenage years and I want more independence and I don't want to feel responsible for their happiness or, you know, keeping them going, I've been parentified by their depression. Um, I may feel guilty if I decide to go off to college in another state rather than staying at home and continuing to live with them and, and doing whatever it is I do to take care of them, right? So um, that is maladaptive guilt because I didn't, tra- tra- you know, pursuing normal developmental goals is not a transgression, right? But people often come into therapy with maladaptive guilt because they come out of family constellations where pursuing their own goals and being different or separate is um, considered uh, to be a transgression, right? So there's some confusion. They've grown up with confusion about what's appropriate and what's okay for them as individuals. And they then uh, need to kind of figure that out. How can I How can I be happy? How can I be successful in my goals if somebody else is telling me that I should feel guilty about that, right? That my job is to take care of them or be a certain way. So, you know, young people struggle a lot with that if they're coming out of certain environments. Um, And it's not uncommon for people to be parentified because these things go down generations. You know, if I didn't get my needs met when I was a kid by my parents, I'm going to have parts who look to my kids the way my parents look to me uh, to take care of me. So it's like this role reversal that, that cascades down generations and it, and it causes the kid to feel guilty about not taking care of the parent, even though, you know, if you're if they were able to step back and see what's kind of the way things are supposed to be, they would say, yeah, yeah, actually that's not my job. And I was really inducted into this as a child. And I need to, and we need to change this, you know, we need to put the roles back the way they should be. I'm not gonna do this anymore. Um, but that can be a real struggle for people because Loyalty is a huge issue, and protective parts can become extremely protective of uh, somebody they grew up taking care of, um, and do that at at you know I can be I can feel protective of of somebody else at my own expense and spend my whole life taking care of other people at my own expense. So that's that's a more guilt of a profile. A shame profile is more. Um, if I feel shameful, my action urges to hide um, and to not be seen, you know, to not, uh, to, and there are different ways of hiding. One is to literally hide, to avoid. Uh, So a lot of people come into therapy with problems of avoidance. But the other is to uh, sort of send up a smokescreen and Rageful parts are like a smokescreen. They're the opposite of shame. They try, shame is very diminishing. If I am shamed externally and then, I, and then I have a critical part internally who picks that up and continues to shame me for whatever quality I was shamed for in the first place, 
I am sort of carrying that banner and doing this to myself. And my action, you know, my action urge is to start avoiding things in life. I'm not going to stick my neck out. I'm not going to give other people the opportunity to do that to me anymore because I'm already shaming myself all the time. All right. I'm not going to go to that party. I'm not going to take that opportunity. I'm not going to take that risk. Um, uh, but the flip side of that, which is inevitable if you're, if you have a, a loud internal critic, is that you will also develop reactive protectors who are angry and will begin to fight back against internal and external critics. And uh, so that's kind of, if you ever see people, hear people say, oh, I thought that the so-and-so was such a nice, sweet person and suddenly they blew up and, you know, or became violent or something. And it was so shocking it came out of the blue. Well, it doesn't come out of the blue, right? It comes from these internal extremes where one part is dominant and it may be a part who's sort of overly compliant and or overly avoidant and another part who is in the wings getting rageful and uh, either blaming other people or blaming the internal critic and, uh, and displays a very different kind of behavior. So that's more of a shame profile. We've seen in politics in this country in the last few years a tremendous amount of public shaming. I mean, shaming has been the theme of the day, right? And very little guilt or no guilt as far as I... There's no expression of guilt. Ever. Oh, I hurt your feelings. Oh, I'm sorry I said that. Oh, how could I say something so terrible about another group of people or whatever? No guilt but a tremendous amount of shaming and rage and building toward violence as a result of that. Why do you think that in our culture, people are eager to shame others? Why do you think that they result to that instead of something more productive? Well, that's a big, another big sociological question. uh, I, I do think that these things get, um, it, it, it becomes what I call a shame cycle, where um, if somebody gets into a position where they're being shamed internally very uh, um, incessantly, uh, they can try to externalize that experience by blaming somebody and shaming somebody else. I mean, it's a, it's, I'm not, we all do it, right? Some people do it more uh, as their way of life and that's how they operate and function because the, they've internalized uh, a lot of criticism and they can't bear it. I mean, actually the alternative is suicide. So uh, it, people extern- can, people who are particularly rageful and shaming of other people are people who are very at very high risk internally, in my view. And I think a lot of people are at pretty high risk in this country for various reasons today. So now one thing that comes to mind is if there is a cycle of sorts, how much of it attaches to the individual because their own qualities lend themselves to that. I have this uh, Velcro analogy I use for things. Like if 
if you don't have some sort of fear inside, then fear from outside can't stick to you because it can't Velcro to you. Mm -hmm. Same thing for right. uh, these two that we were talking about. Is there something in individuals that makes them more susceptible to being, let's say, shamed mm -hmm. than another individual? What are those criteria? Well, that's another great question. I, my guess is that temperament matters to some extent um, and that some people are um, more attuned and sensitive in terms of their temperament. I mean, you see this with little kids, you know, you say, just let's say you're at the airport, right? And there's one little kid who's bouncing off the walls, you know, and running and running into people practically as, as they run around. And, and that's a very, you know, oblivious little kid and the parents chasing after them, trying to make sure they don't disappear. And there's another one who's holding on to uh, mom or dad's leg and is, wouldn't, wouldn't dream of letting mom or dad out of their sight, right? So they're completely different temperaments in these kids. Um, and I think that matters, but I also think um, environment is the priming setup for, uh, you know, kids get, we all get primed by the family that we're born into, the, the kind of ways in which people relate to each other in that family, the, value, the, the values what that family values in terms of relationships and um, uh, and ways of interacting, you know. So if a family relies a lot on on shaming or guilting, um, that's what you're going to grow up uh, sort of knowing how to do. It's a learned skill, and you'll do it to yourself, and you'll do it to other people, um, and then you may gradually become aware of it because you'll also have parts who were unhappy about having had that happen to them and don't like it, right? So there'll be some internal conflict about it. Temperament is something I look at and personality types and how something resonates with us and what we respond to. Sometimes it'll be a scenario where someone is, something is sent at them by another person and some people will pull back some people respond immediately some people respond but at a delay and uh, they'll get back to them later some will think about it for a while it will fester inside and then they may have a response or they'll just hold it in there's so many different responses to the exact same scenario yeah and and what you're doing know. actually armin is making a really good case for uh one of the features that i particularly value about ifs which is that it's very what i call experience near in other words, it does not make a sort of pronouncement about uh, all people or this category of people, and I'm going to try and fit this client into this category. On the contrary, it's very much like, well, you tell me about your experience and who you are and how this particular experience affected you, given who you are, right? So it tracks very closely with just having people tell their story and uh, not trying to fit them into a theoretical category. That's, I mean, we don't do, diagnosis is a completely different thing in IFS than it is uh, for insurance companies or, or whoever else, for example. Now, more broadly here, as a psychotherapist, you see a broad range of who comes in and what their issues are that they come in with in the current time. 
so you can see exactly what people are going to therapy for um, before getting into some of those reasons. What I think of when I think of therapy is it can be communicative. Maybe there's open communication that wouldn't normally happen in that person's life ever. Mm -hmm. So that's like a real opportunity there. Yep. It also comes from a place of understanding yeah. of bigger picture concepts that maybe the person can't see as well yeah. uh, in their own being. Right. And then also it has the element of there's something consistent to it. Like there's a depth of connection mm -hmm. being built. Those are things that come to mind. Yeah. Uh, before I check with you on some of the qualities that a therapist does bring, do those resonate with you? Is that what you would think of when you think of therapy? When I think of therapy, I think of an opportunity that maybe you're not receiving in your own personal relationships. Like maybe you have things that you want to talk about, but you feel like maybe there's no one to talk about it with that can give you an objective point of view. Like maybe there's people are too close to you and uh, they, you might hurt them if you express how you're feeling. Or I think, and I think therapy can maybe, yeah, it's just like a safe place to talk anything out. And so, yeah, I think it's a positive thing. Yeah. Martha, what would you say are some qualities that a therapist uh, should have and that people look for behind the scenes that they would want that make a difference? Yeah, in IFS, we talk about some specific qualities that we're looking for um, people to access if they're uh, uh, both when they're in the role of therapist, but also when they're uh, as an outcome of therapy, right? So um, those qualities are an ability to be curious about uh, one's own experience, turn your attention inside and get curious rather than judgmental with parts, including parts of you who cause trouble or who other people don't like or who you might have, you might feel like you don't like. To, uh, to kind of set that, get, get the parts you don't like Parts fight with each other often and disapprove of each other. And to get the parts, one, a disapproving part to kind of relax back so you can actually be curious about a part who seems to be causing trouble, right? And then um, making a connection with that part and uh, having compassion for that part and appreciating that part's courage and... Uh, and having the courage to listen to uh, whatever story that part has to tell um, rather than trying to shut it up, you know, because the parts who get shut up are the ones who have had painful experiences and, and have, sometimes have some bad news that nobody, no other part wants to hear. It's like, no, 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 you're making that up. It didn't happen. No, 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 no. You know, you'll hear that from protectors and they're young parts who are like, we can't live with this information so we're just gonna pretend it didn't happen. Um, and then, but the part to whom it happened, it's like, yeah, actually it did happen to me and it was really awful and I want someone to validate that. I want someone to witness that. Um, so there are certain qualities that we need to bring to the therapy hour that uh, sort of, as Dick says, kind of like a tuning fork for those qualities in the and the client as these parts make more room for the client 
for the clients, what we call their self, their the center, their so centered, um, compassionate con consciousness to come into play um, and have self-compassion and bring compassion to these parts who have suffered and the parts who have tried to handle it as well. Uh, there's also playfulness, perspective, persistence, um, some other you know qualities like that that uh, we need to bring to um, to people who are suffering and and can be scared of exploring why or find it really painful to explore why. I've always thought about that if you want to reach for the anguish in individuals, you're going to hit on some really touchy parts there. Uh, as far as I've, it comes to mind that there are some people I have known at different times that whether through parents or such, they don't like themselves. They've actually told me that they just don't like parts of themselves mm -hmm. uh, or it may come across in their external nature. So they have exiled some, some parts of themselves, right? It seems like, yeah. yeah. Right. And everybody does that. Some people more more severely than others, but yeah, it's really common. It seems quite prevalent because it's not just like one, I, multiple individuals I'm coming to mind. Have you known of individuals that some parts of themselves they were not fond of? I may have experienced that more with seeing insecurity in people about certain things or wanting to pull back their thoughts on something where they didn't, I guess, love themselves enough to share their opinions or share their feelings openly. And I just, I take that kind of in that realm of maybe not liking something. They not having a lot of confidence. They're not willing to be open. You mean not having a lot of confidence in themselves? That kind of resonates with, yeah, like not liking yourself is when you don't have, because if you like yourself, I feel like you're going to be confident. Mm -hmm. Because you feel good enough about yourself where you can express yourself openly to other people. Right. But if you're withdrawing, it's like there's something there that you're not loving, you're not liking about yourself. <laughs> or you're afraid other people are going to criticize about you, possibly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's like you're just not accepting all around and maybe other people maybe wouldn't accept it or something. Right. When that is the case... How can you reach, is that stuck forever? Is there a way to alter that viewpoint? No, that's the whole, that's the whole uh, point of, of therapy, in my view, is that um, people learned, people learn, we learn in childhood in one setting or another. And sometimes it's in a really glaringly traumatic setting. And sometimes it's uh, a much more subtle thing that other people wouldn't notice. But we all learn in various ways that there are some things about us that need to be kept out of sight. Um, you know, my older sibling makes fun of me for X, or my I go to school and my teacher uh, thinks I'm stupid because of Y, or and expresses that you know in some way, disapproval or humiliates me in some way. So, you know, I I defy you to find somebody who got through childhood without um, being hurt in some, in some fashion by somebody, a peer, uh, a sibling, a parent, uh, a teacher, some other authority figure. I mean, you know, life is dangerous. 
and kids are particularly powerless. Um, so, um, and there's a lot of jockeying for power among, uh, among peers too. So, um, you know, it, navigating through childhood um, is a hard, is um, full of lessons, let's put it that way, it's challenging. And uh, along the way, we put certain features of ourself or our body uh, as far out of sight as possible in order to get through without that bad thing happening again, whatever it was. Um, so there's a priming with experience for uh, an external injury to become, to go inside and become an internal kind of method of self-governance, right? Somebody shames me and then I have a part who picks that up and and shames me, and I become the perpetrator on myself. I become the critic. And um, that critical part isn't popular with other parts, but it's desperate to try and make me acceptable and lovable and included and be sure that I have, you know, uh, uh, I'm not kicked out, I'm not exiled from the group. Um, so so my, the critics, our critics are working hard to try to keep us socially connected. Um, and, and ironically, they're, they're often young and they don't see the irony of shaming to prevent you from feeling shameful, right? Because it just makes matters worse. Internal criticism causes that part who got hurt to feel worse rather than better. You know, maybe a self-improvement project, but if someone's yelling at you all the time to improve yourself, you, it's very hard to improve yourself, right? You just want to hide. Right, get under the covers and, and stay out of sight. So the part who got hurt gets stuck in this feeling of being shameful. And then these rebellious, reactive parts come on to try and um, kind of uh, counteract the shaming. Um, and they do the stuff that causes more shaming, you know, the drinking, the drugs, the, the you know, sexual risk-taking, the this, the that the more impulsive, compulsive behaviors that bring people relief, those things are also then criticized, again, externally and internally. And um, it's a cycle that's hard for people to get out of on their own. This conversation actually reminds me of a program that was offered back when I was in high school, and it was like the self-esteem program and what um, the facilitator would do would have all these students come in and she would hand out these worksheets and she would have people answer questions basically about themselves. And then she would go around and like have people answer things of um, like basically like questions to help you build self-esteem. But I remember the questions being a little bit like things that you were affirming, you wanted to affirm in your own self. Mm -hmm. And as I have lived and learned other things, I now have come to believe that it's actually, you don't, you don't necessarily ever esteem yourself. You actually are esteemed by other people. Mm -hmm. So I think that concept has always just kind of blown my mind because mm -hmm. there's so many, so much thought, I think, even in this world and misconception. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that you don't necessarily esteem yourself, but you ought to have someone you highly respect and very much loves you to esteem you and actually have correct information about yourself mm. to 
then be esteemed. Well, I, I totally think you're right in that it's we all need other people to esteem and love us um, and not criticize and and you know uh, denigrate us. I mean, we all need support, social support, love. Um, I think we also need it internally, though, and I don't think it's so much a matter of esteem um, in a global way as it is this rela these relationships that are going on inside. So that if I esteem and love my parts, no matter how vulnerable they are or how obnoxious they can be at times, then my parts are going to become more responsive and um, willing to cooperate with me. In other words, if I can get the critic to kind of slow down and you know take a break from all that criticism, and I can get in there with a lot of curiosity, uh, interest, compassion, validation for what motivates my parts, I can, you know, I can become the Pied Piper inside and bring these parts to, to the party of being, feeling better about themselves and being happier. And then I am a happier person. Right. So I think it's a, there's a relational thing that goes on inside as well as outside our parts. We need love in our relationships, but our parts also need love internally in their relationships with each other and with us. So it's in a, it's like a Russian doll, you know, it goes down in different layers. Everybody needs the same thing uh, and it's love. Everybody needs to be esteemed and loved. Right. So you're definitely mentioning that internal self-love. And I think maybe what I have perceived is perhaps more you can get to different places with the help of people or sharing things that are going on internally. And by through your relationships in life, you can learn to love yourself more. And I guess that's I'm kind of leaning towards the benefits of those relationships for that internal relationship with yourself? Well, you know, I mean, I think it's different for different people. Again, I think for some people that really works, but for other people, their relationships have been dangerous in childhood uh, and sometimes very dangerous. And their protective parts are not ready to let them actually get close to anybody again. Um, so they don't have, they can't get the benefit of getting into relationship with somebody who will treat them better. Um, they tend to repeat these very dangerous relationships rather than finding somebody who's going to treat them differently. And so what I find in therapy is that, that folks who have gone through life in that way need to sort out some of the toxic stuff that got um, uh sort of triggered, turned on in, inside and keeps going on inside so that they can then go find different people uh, who will be safe for them and who will love them externally. And so it's different with different people. Um, and, it, and you just have to see who you've got, who you're sitting with, who you've got in front of you and what their needs are. One question here that comes to mind is, are there any people that, slightly different topic here, but that come to you and are not able to be reached or not just you or in general, but what are some qualities of an individual that 
would not be reachable or is too far gone in some way? I would never say that somebody is unreachable or too far gone. If I can't reach them, I would assume it's something about what I'm doing that I'm not clued in yet enough to what would be helpful for this person. Um, and that's certainly true. I'm not, you know, I'm not a magician. I, I, I cannot uh, uh, help everybody. Um, uh, but if I don't, I assume it's not, it's not about that person being unhelpable. It's just that I don't have the skill level or the understanding that they need yet. And maybe I'll get it and maybe they'll need to go find somebody else to help them. But um, I, I don't believe anybody is un, unhelpable. Is it more about finding specifically what speaks to them or is it something way more advanced that it's beyond their own thinking and you're like reaching them maybe in their subconscious? Is it more like you're directly talking with them in a way that they're, that they hear things that matters or you're talking to their, uh, the child of them, their inner child in a way that really speaks to that child or is it that you're not doing that and you're just uh, trying to get underneath into their subconscious you know armin i i i would not again i wouldn't generalize if someone is having a really tough time making use of therapy um it may be because the therapy isn't right for them that therapy approach isn't right for them and it may be because um, they're not ready for that particular exploration at that time and it just doesn't feel safe enough to them to do that, and then you have to honor that with people. You know, people people know themselves uh, uh, better than we know them, and what's going to be um, doable at any given point in their life. Uh, so I've had people who, you know, were in therapy and could do a certain kind of exploration, then will come back later in later years and say, "I wasn't ready to do this then, but now I." Now I'm now I am I'm I'm certain that I am and I'm and I'm wondering if you would help me again. So um. one concept that also comes to my mind is when I when I was in gosh maybe this was like four or five years ago I would be on like certain blogging sites and I would see a lot of quotes about or like pictures and they had the words let it go. And it was a lot of this like theme I would see just, I don't know, more back then than even now. And the thing is, is that I don't necessarily think people can just let go of like very deep things. Maybe, Mm -hmm. yeah, like you're saying like childhood traumas. And I think it is probably necessary to work things out. Like you're saying like internally and like talk things out or with yourself or with people or a therapist rather than thinking that they can just like let's let it go yeah i mean let it go is is kind of um um cruel advice actually for some people it's not it really should not be up to anybody else uh, to tell me or you when it's time to let something go it's very invalidating if somebody needs something to be um heard and recognized and understood um, and they need a witness, basically, for their experience. Letting it go is just more of that shove it under the rug and nobody wants to hear it and you're not valuable. 
um, and nobody wants to hear from this part of you. So it's more exiling of an experience that is painful and maybe painful for other people to hear. So yeah, let it go is, is not, it's maybe not good new age advice, in my opinion, <laughs> right? People, people decide for themselves when it's time to let it go, and they do. You know, that's when therapy is successful. People often get to the point where their parts, you know, a part who's been hurt feels better. Yeah, I know that wasn't about me. I know, you know, children are very solipsistic and, and self-referential. So they assume if something bad happens to them, it's because they're bad and, so, and they deserved it. And once, the, once that part of you says, you know, it was just a bad thing that happened. It wasn't, I'm not bad. I get it. It wasn't about me. I didn't cause this person to behave this way. I was uh, just, you know, having bad luck. I was, I was right there, and it happened to me. Um, and that is a is a huge relief and release. And in that that realization, letting go of the belief that I caused this or I'm bad, is letting it go. But you know, that's a that's something that somebody has to come to. Parts have to come to on their own. People have to come to on their own. Nobody else can tell you uh, to do that. Do you, in uh, in the therapy that you use, like, do you talk about or teach forgiveness, or is that something that isn't necessarily a term that's used? No, I mean forgiveness. Um, again, forgiveness is is something that people have to decide for themselves, right? They're, uh, in my view. Uh, but again, once you once you look at the mind as being plural, as having lots of parts, you can have a part who says, "I'm never going to forgive that. I I don't forgive that. I will never forgive it." And you can have other parts who say, "I forgive it. I understand. I I, I got it. I get that that was a disturbed person. I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to hold on to this anymore because it's just hurting me." But you can have different parts who have different feelings internally, and you just validate that. You know, um, people and parts have to come to uh, forgiveness as a, again, a release for me, not for the person who transgressed, but uh, for me. And sometimes people or parts are ready for that, and sometimes they're not. Yes, right. It it seems that forgiveness seems to be more about the release for a person rather than living in anger, just being, I'm going to forgive that person. And I think this is a very common concept more in Christianity because it's something where I think people give things to God and look at that from that point of view. Um, So I don't always know how right forgiveness is in relation if you're not taking God to, God into account. Um, but like you're saying, it's a very complex thing. It seems like it's not like you just forgive a person. It's like, okay, feelings are heard. Things are validated. Yeah. There's a lot of like different angles that things need to be talked about. Um, it's not just something it's like, oh, I forgive you. It's like, there's a, a lot more to it. Right. And a lot of what the more to it is that, is that there's a process of validation before I'm gonna forgive anybody, I need to have my experience uh, validated. You know, I'm not gonna have my experience denied and then feel forgiving. It's just not gonna happen. You know, um, I'm gonna 
want people, we all want to be heard. And it's remarkable how healing that is to have someone hear you and believe you rather than deny it or tell you to let it go or tell you to forgive the other person prematurely or, you know, try and shut you up and your feelings uh, of whatever they are, anger, pain, grief, um, sadness, whatever it is that makes the other person uncomfortable, um, you need to find somebody who can tolerate feelings and who will say, yeah, you have every right to feel that way. And of course you feel that way. I would have, I would feel that way too if I had that experience. And nobody should have ever treated you like that. It's not okay that that happened to you. And tell me more about the, what the worst thing was that about it happening to you and what it was like for you. Um, and that's what's healing, is, is being heard, being validated, being recognized. And after that, forgiveness is a kind of, like, I, I'm, I'm moving on. I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not stuck in that place anymore. I've got what I need, and I'm ready for something else. I'm not going to be sitting around thinking about this anymore. Um, I'm done. Do you ever work with people who experience relationships where they aren't being validated by the person they want to be validated by for, say, forgiveness to be had? You mean couples? I mean, it sort of seems to me you're talking about couple therapy and family therapy, basically. Yeah, Yeah. it'd probably be more like, I guess, family dynamics where... Mm -hmm. Maybe something happened in childhood and maybe a parent um, wouldn't validate them in mm-hmm. whatever they felt they went through. I mean, basically, if somebody can get their family members to come into therapy and have a real discussion about what actually happened, uh, and that's what they want, that's their aim, and they're not, they don't feel the, the family members too toxic or dangerous to do that. In the present, that's a great thing to do. You know, I'm all for family therapy. Sometimes, you know, the person's dead, or they're not available, or they're not trustworthy enough uh, to bring in uh, to a therapy session, and that's up to the client to decide. Uh, of course, if it, if you're if you're working with kids, you you know, then part part of the package deal is to help parents as well if they're willing. Um, and, but it's, it's all about what your client wants and what their goal is for their relationships with, with anybody who's hurt them. Right. That is an important one there. Sometimes there is a parent that does not validate. How is that described? Does not validate the views maybe, of their... Uh, maybe some sort of experience that the child felt or... Right. But maybe the parent doesn't. Right. That's true. Sometimes there's an experience that the child goes through. The parent doesn't validate that the child went through the experience. So the child feels left out uh, in that scenario. And that, let let me just say something, Armin, because that can happen in a big way, right? Uh, You know, no, you know, no, you were not sexually abused by your uncle. No, we're not. No, that didn't happen, right? That's a big... Or it can be, um, I want to eat some dinner, some candy before dinner. No, you don't. You don't want candy 
you want your dinner. Well, instead of saying, of course you want the candy, but you can't have it, right? Uh, validating the desire for the candy and then setting a limit. Um, the, if the person just says, no, you don't want that, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. So you don't want it, right? That's a very confusing message for a child, but there are certainly kids who grow up in households where their feelings are just, they're just told having that feeling is incorrect and wrong and we're not going to acknowledge it, that you have the feeling. We don't do un, unhappy faces in this household. You know, cheer up, right? Uh, we don't do anger here. That's not our family, right? So um, kids get these messages about what, is acceptable and what isn't acceptable, and they have to take them seriously. This is true. And it's sometimes if it doesn't have all the warmth behind it, then they don't have the ability to, it's not a great environment to respond in, and then later on, they may do the same cycle, pass that on, onward. And they do it to themselves, you know? No, anger isn't acceptable. I don't do anger. I'm not an angry person. So they exile their the parts of them who would be more assertive about things, right? They they are more compliant than they ought to be until they become explosive because their angry part that's been put in the wings comes roaring back on the stage and takes over and says, I'm not I'm not gonna let everybody treat you like a doormat enough. Right? So and then that scares the person and everybody around them, and it just reinforces the idea that anger in the angry part is is bad and is a problem, and the angry part gets exiled again, and it's a pattern, you know, overly compliant, too angry. Very interesting. The dynamics are important. I want to go back to the one thing, the let it go from earlier, mm -hmm. because I thought of someone I know that let it go would really, I guess, offend them or trigger them in the way you were describing. Mm -hmm. So it was nice to describe that they would basically agree heavily with what you said. That was one of their themes in life was can't let go of things, those things. In a way, they were describing it like those things are today still. They happen, but they are still today, right. at least for them. Right. It's still going on today. And parts, here's a here's a thing. Parts live in a, they don't live in the material world, right? Time travel is part of their, is normal for parts. So a part can be stuck in the past and literally and can, and can just be viewing everything that happens in the present as if it's a repeat of what is happening to them, right? You know, and for them, it's right now. I'm still in this scary place. I'm hiding in the corner, you know, and, and that part, you'll find that part there hiding in the corner, feeling terrified. And that's where it is. And when you get it out of there, it feels better, actually. It needs to leave the past. It got left behind in a scary place by other parts who needed to move on in life. But they left this part in a bad place. And that feeling the person goes around and say, I don't know why I'm so anxious. I don't know why I hear screaming in my head when I go to sleep at night. I don't know why I'm having nightmares, you know, because it's, it's not present for and conscious for them. They don't realize, oh, I got over all that. I don't, you know, I'm not troubled by that anymore. But actually they are. Right. That is informative. And I'm glad 
glad that it started with the let it go that you brought up there. It was nice to get back to that because it made me think of someone specifically. I have one last one. Do you have a closing question from your end for Martha? And then I have one as well. Any thoughts come to mind, if any, or commentary? And then I have one other also question. Mm -hmm. Not at the moment. Maybe you go first. I have one question here, uh, which I always like to ask. It's more broad. Are there any people who guided you in some way that made a difference in your life path? Is there any specific person that was caused a fork in the road that you would have gone into a different path if not for them? Yeah, Richard Schwartz, I mean, for sure. You know, uh, meeting him was a, uh, a real light bulb moment and watching his work. Right. That was a substantial thing, figure that you pointed out earlier. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That brief moment and then boom. Yeah. It gives a sense of direction of sorts. Very cool. Yeah. I think my closing question would be, are you happy that you went into the field you did and have worked um, a number of years in the field that you have? Yeah, I wouldn't trade uh, the career I've had uh, for any other that I can think of. I mean, unless I was, you know, like a wizard mathematician or something, then I'm sure I'd want to do that, but I'm not. So, um, you know, the, given who I am and what I could do, I'm extremely happy with um, the career I've had. and. Um, and, and, and being able to combine writing, I was a writer before I got into this field, being able to combine writing, uh, uh, about something that I feel is, um, is so important with, uh, being able to, you know, I, I feel I get as much or more out of doing the work I do than the people I hopefully help. I mean, they give a tremendous amount to me and I've learned more from my clients than from anybody else and from my own parts you know so uh i have uh i've had a great time that's wonderful and okay actually just one more if you could give advice to a beginning therapist Mm -hmm. that's at the very start of their career Mm -hmm. is there any word that you would give to them one word or like a like a saying or a belief or some sort of uh, advice. Yeah, um, yeah. My advice would be. I, I mean, I really. This is why I wrote this book on shame and guilt. Actually, is because um, it was the trajectory, the thirty year trajectory of my career was exploring these topics from what I noticed when I first started sitting with people to what I learned over all these years and. Um, what I would say is make use of people like me and, uh, you know, folks who are toward the end of their careers, use us as a springboard so you don't have to go through everything. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, um, start, start where we're ending and go on from there uh, because, you know, I wish that I had known uh, at the beginning of my career, what I know now, and that's why I wrote it all down. So I'm hoping that um, the books I've written will be will be really helpful for people who are at the start of their career, and um, uh, will make make people be you know move on in pioneering ways that I can't even imagine. I'm sure.
That sounds very wise. Yes. Young people should reach out to anybody who is experienced in their field and absolutely take advantage and of that knowledge because I would think that people who have had a long-lived career of just um, of gaining so much experience and knowledge would want to would want to share. So you're saying yes through your I am, but I'm also and, saying don't don't be hemmed in by what we have come up with. You know, use it and and explore and go beyond us because there's always more to learn. You know, and uh, we we only great. have so much time. So you guys are taking the torch and and going on from there. Awesome. Thank you for even this talk was wonderful. So. You're welcome. My pleasure. Dr. Martha Sweezy, I would like to thank you for this talk. My guest, Rebecca Faith Lawson, wonderful. I'm very glad to have had you on the program, Martha. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Armin Show is a culmination of so many of my discussions with thoughtful individuals, knowledgeable individuals, creative individuals, people who have something to say in a category that they have put effort into maybe for years, maybe for decades. A lot of experience comes through. I like finding the links between people and topics of discussion in the categories that you have come to recognize. We're glad to continue the show, to branch out, to expand, to have more links between individuals, to have bigger groupings of individuals together in different formats so that the show becomes more of a show. And as we continue to do this, we're always glad for your support along the way. The Army Show is something that has developed from all my past efforts, blogging, making videos, audios, and has reached to this point where there are now hundreds of episodes with people or just with myself bringing knowledge, sometimes entertainment, information, something that can help us progress forward in the categories that I tend to cover. Hope you enjoy it, and onward we go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please comment any takeaways you had, and we'll see you on The Armin Show next time.